We Turned Out Okay is a show about children and families. You get to see into the mind of a child development expert, and you'll learn tons about kids and why they do what they do. It's for grown-ups, so it's not always G-rated. But it's almost always PG. And we'll let you know when it's PG-13 or higher. Also, you can expect some rabbit holes and detours. But we return to the topic at hand. Besides, rabbits are awesome. What have you got against rabbits? Anyway, sit back, relax, and prepare to learn about how to stay sane while raising your little kids. Enjoy the show! Come on, guys! We turned out okay. The modern parent's guide to old school parenting. I want to hang upside down from the swing set. Welcome to We Turned Out Okay with host Karen Locke Cole. I want to climb to the top of that tree. And now, here's your host, Karen Locke Cole. Hello and welcome to We Turned Out Okay. This is episode 252 of the show that helps you change your child's behavior from bad to good, feel happy inside, and truly enjoy the time that you spend with your family. And today's episode is a special one. I named it, as you can see from the title, I named it In Praise of Positive Discipline. And it's really all about, instead of being about how to do positive discipline, which is really kind of what this entire podcast has been about. Today's episode is in support of that, but by showing, by kind of illustrating the dangers of corporal punishment, of spanking, of of, of relying on obedience and control to um, to to help your child grow up basically. And that's not what we want. So I, I wanted to bring you a really one of my favorite conversations that we've ever had on We Turned Out Okay, which was originally episode 107 of the show with Dr. Bernard Dreyer at the time he was the sitting president of the American Academy of Pediatrics, which it's interesting the the American Academy of Pediatrics has a cycle for their presence. You're only actually president for one year. You spend the year before you're president learning how to be president. You spend that year that you are president as president. And then you spend the following year helping the new, the next president. So um, so you've basically got a three-year span there, which Dr. Dreyer outlines in this episode. But I, you know, I it, it's so interesting to me. Like, you don't just become president and you're thrown to the wolves. You get help. <laughs> you get it seems so wonderful. It's such a great way to great way to do it. So anyway, um, I, I wanted to rebroadcast this interview, and I'd been thinking about it for a couple of weeks, partly because it's one of my favorites, and it will show you how to have a good relationship with your child. Dr. Dreyer, for example, talks about how the important things are to read with your child and to talk with your child and to help your child explore the world. And memorably, he says, that's much more important than some worksheets. And that's a part where we're specifically talking about education, educating kids. This episode originally aired in early, in the early school year. So like in September of 2017, I believe. And I think that's right. It could be 2016 now, as I think about it. I think it's probably early September of 2016. Gosh, we've been on for a while. <laughs> if it was episode 107, that's 150 episodes ago. So yeah. Uh, and 
so you will hear a lot about education and stuff like that. It's just such, it's all such good information for you. And then the other thing that got me thinking about it is a week or two ago in the newspaper, I read that the American Academy of Pediatrics is officially making a statement coming out and saying that spanking is harmful and ineffective and that, and pedi- the, the 67,000 doctors, um, in the American Academy of Pediatrics, that's a lot of doctors. The the 67,000 pediatricians say to avoid using fear or violence on kids. And I am going to read you a little bit of this, a little bit of this article because it, I think it will enlighten and, and stuff, but I wanted to, I just wanted to address the idea that like, in order to understand, in order to be in praise of positive discipline, we need to understand what the repercussions are of negative discipline. And that's really what today's show, it's definitely, it straddles that line because there's going to be some conversation. We, for example, Dr. Dreyer and I get into a, a conversation about something called toxic stress, which obviously is very, very bad. It's incredibly negative and it's, it's, it's tough on the kids who are experiencing it. And, um, so I think in order to understand how, in order to understand the justification for positive discipline, we need to understand the negatives of of negative discipline. We need to understand why things like spanking are bad, why corporal punishment is bad. And um, so I, I, I hope that this entire podcast is really about for you using positive discipline. I think that's, that's a huge, because what we're doing, what's at the basis of that is having a good relationship with our kids. And that's what matters in the long run. It doesn't matter that you got them to be compliant over uh, keeping it down while they're, while they're in the house, you know, it it matters much more how we go about that, because there are different ways to do it. And in upcoming shows and in past shows, there will be lots of ways. In fact, tomorrow, I want to, I'm one of the things I needed to do in this pre-show is to tell you that you can expect in your feed arriving tomorrow, a special episode of We Turned Out Okay. I'm calling it episode 252.5 in an effort to make it searchable, because a lot of times what's happened is, um, it's not uh, bonus episodes, which are awesome. They're not really easily searchable. So this is my new way of trying to address that. But it's going to be about five ways. I'm teaching you five ways to have happy kids on Thanksgiving, which is oftentimes a, truff, a troubling day. It's it's out of routine. Kids are underfoot. Um, there's not there's a lot of expectations that your child probably won't you know won't be able to live up to and it can make it can make for some very fraught time so look forward to that tomorrow wednesday the day before thanksgiving is coming out um a special bonus episode of we turned out okay that's going to be very very positive and as i said before a lot of this conversation is positive because dr dreyer has a really great outlook on on childhood and and families and i think that's super cool it's very necessary i think in a in somebody who's the president of the american academy of pediatrics because they see a lot of negatives and to help people understand what what the positives could be i think that's a really important part of their job so without further ado i'm going to get into i just want to read some of this particular article i know that reading on a podcast isn't necessarily the the best way of sharing information it, it's it'll sound canned but i think it's still important to do it because i want you to hear from this group like instead of just me relaying it i want it to really be from the group so okay this this article by the way was written by christina karen 
of the New York Times. And the headline is spanking is harmful, ineffective, group says. Parents should not spank their children, the Academy of Pediatrics said Monday in its most strongly worded policy statement, warning against the harmful effects of corporal punishment in the home. The group, which represents about 67,000 doctors, also recommended that pediatricians advise parents against the use of spanking, which is defined as, quote, non-injurious, open-handed hitting with the intention of modifying child behavior, unquote, and said to avoid using non-physical punishment that is humiliating, scary, or threatening. Again, a quote. One of the most important relationships we all have is the relationship between ourselves and our parents. And it makes sense to eliminate or limit fear and violence in that loving relationship, said Dr. Robert D. Sedge, or I'm going to say Sedge, a pediatrician at Tufts Medical Center in the Floating Hospital for Children in Boston, and one of the authors of this statement. The Academy's new policy, which will be published in the December issue of the journal Pediatrics, there it is, <laughs> I couldn't remember the name of the journal, so that it's, it's in the upcoming uh, Pediatrics, updates 20-year-old guidance on discipline that recommended parents be, quote, encouraged not to spank. The organization's latest statement stems from a body of research that was unavailable two decades ago. And it goes on to describe the research and... And some of the other, uh, there's, there's at least one more factor that I want to bring up here, but I'm just going to finish this part with a quote from the same doctor, Dr. Robert Sedge. Certainly you can get a child's attention, but it's not an effective strategy to teach right from wrong. And I think that's really the gist I want to leave you with here. Um, we need positive discipline to teach right from wrong because positive discipline that doesn't have humiliation, that doesn't involve fear is, is the only kind that's going to that's going to both have our kids be, um, I won't say obedient, but understanding being mindful of, of right and wrong. Um, and also help us have a great relationship with our kids. So, so that's, that's the gist of this article. I also wanted to reference, um, in, in another paragraph, they talk about how recent studies have also shown, and I'm reading again, that corporal punishment is associated with increased aggression and makes it more likely that children will be defiant in the future. Spanking alone is associated with outcomes similar to those of children who experience physical abuse, the new Academy statement says. So in other words, if you're spanking as a disciplinary measure, you're not getting out the, you know, the belt or something like that. Um, but you or the wooden spoon, but you are swatting with an open hand, you're, you're, you know, you're, you're, you're striking somebody's hand, you're saying, no, that's bad. Um, you're sort of disciplining your child as if you would discipline a dog, um, which even it doesn't even work with dogs. <laughs> so don't do that, right? Um, it, that's, these new studies are showing that that's, that's, it's not helping. And it's creating children who, um, who don't have they're not getting these lessons, right? Um, that, that these things don't have the effect that we want them to have. Um, we should avoid, as the article says, using non-physical punishment that's humiliating, scary, or threatening because it just doesn't, it doesn't do the job and it, it has potential ramifications. Actually, here's another part that says there are potential ramifications to the brain as well. A 2009 study of 23 young adults who had repeated exposure to harsh corporal punishment found reduced gray matter volume in an area of the prefrontal cortex that's believed to play a crucial role in social cognition. 
those exposed to harsh punishment also had a lower performance IQ than that of a control group. So I, I think the la- the second part of that is, uh, I mean, we can talk about what, what's an IQ and, and how is that, you know, how are we learning that? Uh, when, when, when a study shows that people have a reduced gray matter in the area of the prefrontal cortex that helps with social cognition, meaning that we're actually making it less likely that our kids would be able to have good positive relationships because they're not understanding social cognition is the understanding of your social environment, right? Um, that the, the next paragraph is because my next objection is, wait a minute, that's only 23 people, right? Although the study was small in scope, it can help pr- provide a biological basis for other observations about corporal punishment, Dr. Sedge said. So... What is the best way to discipline children? This article continues. That largely depends on the age and temperament of the child, experts say. Effective discipline involves practicing empathy and understanding, quote, understanding how to treat your child in different stages in development. Pardon me. To teach them how to cool down when things get explosive, says another doctor, Dr. Vincent J. Palushi, a child abuse pediatrician at Hassenfeld Children's Hospital at NYU Langone, which was the NYU Langone Medical Center is where... Uh, past guest and just wonderful, awesome guy, medical ethicist, Arthur Kaplan, Dr. Arthur Kaplan is also, um, he, he is a professor at Langone Medical Center. Um, I'm going to, I'm just going to link to Dr. Kaplan, uh, his episodes in here. And I'm also going to link to this article so that you can read it for yourself. And I think I'm going to stop reading from it at this point. We're 12 minutes in. You want to get to this conversation with Dr. Dreyer. Uh, I just want to leave you with the idea that like, in order to understand how good positive discipline is, it's really instructive to find out how bad negative discipline, discipline is. And spanking is considered negative discipline, according to the American Academy of Pediatrics, which is a just a huge body of, of pediatricians and um, a real guiding force in like, in what, what kids need. Uh, I'm, I've been very, very impressed with them. So I want to get you to this conversation as soon as possible. Uh, a couple program notes. So usually I do a free Magic Words for Parents video, giving you a word or a phrase to take into your parenting week. And uh, I also usually give you a, a YouTube live video on Thursdays that is also free and um, therefore you can, you can watch all the past ones. But this week, uh, Magic Words for Parents and the YouTube live are both off because it's Thanksgiving week. So next week you can, you can look forward to a new Magic Words for Parents and you can also look forward to a YouTube live embedded right in the, in the podcast episode notes. So um so that's how that's how I usually do those. So that'll be next week. They're off for this week. A uh, couple more program notes. <clears throat> I'm super excited because the I have finished my book. It is called 10 Secrets Happy Parents Know How to Get Good Behavior. How to Get Good Behavior. I'm not remembering the sub the subheading right exactly well. How to get good behavior from your child, how to stop the chaos, and how to truly enjoy family time. It is finished, 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 finished. And the PDF is now available in 
the ninja parenting community. I am going to unleash it on the world. I've got some some publishing details to take care of. And then it is going to be uh, live in Amazon in both ebook form and in print form. Uh, on December the 4th is my goal to do that. And I think we're going to get there. I think we're going to get there. I, I really wanted to, for you to be able to have this book in your hands as soon as possible. Uh, if you are a member of the Ninja Parenting community, well, you can do that uh, by just going to our forums and downloading the PDF because it's there. I'm so excited about this, you guys. I've been working so hard on this book and to know that it's finally ready and uh, and able to go out into your hands. That is, I th- I'm so excited about it. So um, if you if you are already a member of the Ninja Parenting community, go ahead and download it. It's right in the forums. And if you want to become a member of the Ninja Parenting community, go to weturnedoutok.com slash join NPC. The link will be right here in the show notes and, um, and become a member. And then you can, you can, uh, you know, you can have access to this too. And I would just want to let you in on a little secret. So if you do that, not today, Tuesday, two days before Thanksgiving, but tomorrow, Wednesday, one day before Thanksgiving, you will be able to try NPC for the first, for your first month of membership for just $1. And then I'm also offering a special on consecutive, on consecutive, like for your second, third, et cetera months, you'll get, um, you'll get a, a good deal because uh, I'm offering an I'm grateful special starting tomorrow. So so <laughs> so if you're listening to this in real time, wait until tomorrow and then go to weturned.ok.com slash join NPC. And then you can basically have access to to all the stuff in the Ninja Parenting community, including this book, which is finally out. Hooray, hooray, hooray. Um, right away. Otherwise, uh, it, it, you know, if you're inclined to wait, that's absolutely fine. It will be up for for sale in print and in ebook format uh, through Amazon in, in on December the 4th. So uh, just a couple of weeks from now. So but anyway, uh, you can get it now. <laughs> you can get it tomorrow for for just a dollar for the first month of Ninja Parenting Community Membership. So go to weturnedoutok.com slash join NPC to find out what all that means. And um, in the meantime, thank you so much for sharing this show, for subscribing so that you never miss an episode. And for your, your rave reviews, we've gotten some wonderful, wonderful, wonderful reviews. And I will be reading more of them as we get them, as they come in. So, all right, without further ado, here is Dr. Dreyer. And uh, I will see you tomorrow for that special episode. With the school year starting up, a contentious election giving the feeling of continual hate and negativity in the air, and reports of yet another thing for parents to be worried about, toxic stress in their young children, I knew we needed some voices of reason in our lives, and today's guest is the head of an organization with many such voices of reason. Your child's pediatrician is probably among them. He's a pediatrician too, as well as a professor of pediatrics, the developmental, no, sorry, the director of developmental behavioral pediatrics at at the NYU School of Medicine. He's the director of pediatrics at Bellevue Hospital. And I just learned that he also hosts a radio show on Sirius XM called On Call for Kids. It's in his capacity as the president of the American Academy of Pediatrics that he's with us today. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Dr. Bernard Dreyer. Welcome, Dr. Dreyer. 
Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Yes, it's so exciting to talk to you. I, I'm really, I'm really looking forward to our conversation. And I just wanted to, I was as I was reading your uh, credentials, I realized that is it at the NYC, is it at the NYU School of Medicine that you are both a professor of pediatrics and the director of developmental behavioral pediatrics? Yes. Have I got that right? So what yes. does that entail? Just that little, I, you are such a busy guy. <laughs> what does so, that part of your life entail? So, uh, it, you know, I'm involved. Uh, I, I direct the program here in developmental behavioral pediatrics, which means that I direct the clinical program where a number of uh, physicians who are specialists in developmental behavior problems see patients here, mm-hmm. uh, both at Bellevue and at uh the NYU faculty group practice, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, I also direct uh, a training program. We have fellows in developmental behavioral pediatrics, and we do very significant research in early brain and child development, especially among poor children, many of whom are experiencing toxic stress, in trying to help parents uh, do what they really want to do, which is to be better parents and uh provide more support, nurturing, language, stimulation, and a safe place for their kids. Wow, that sounds like a a, a big list. (laughs) I I think a list that we all aspire to do well with, but but a big list nonetheless. Um, So clinically, uh, we see kids with ADHD, with autism, with language problems, which with uh, emotional problems and their behavior, behavior problems such as oppositional defiant disorder mm-hmm. or anxiety. Uh, so a lot of different issues and work with, of course, the families. Yep. Uh, I always say you can't help kids without helping their families. So, Absolutely. Uh, yeah. So true. Yeah. Uh, and I really, I'm looking forward to digging into kind of the, the this deeper, deeper stuff. But, um, but before we get there, I'd love to just talk a little bit about like, well, for example, you're based in New York now, right? Have, have you always been a New Yorker? I have to say, uh, I have always been a New Yorker. Yeah. I'm, I'm a dedicated New Yorker, although I now I'm traveling so much that I'm not here as much. Yeah. But yeah. This, this year has been very much. I spend a lot of time in Chicago, where the AAP offices are, and also in D.C., where the federal offices of the AAP are. Mm-hmm. And I travel around uh, the country and the world, uh, speaking at various meetings uh, representing the AAP. And the AAP being the American Academy of Pediatrics. Yes, yeah. I'm sorry. Yes. Yeah. Oh, no, it's okay. Academy it's, Pediatrics. it's an everyday thing in your life. It's it's yes. you know, relatively new to me and, and listeners. Um did you always know, even as a young man, that you wanted yes, to? I think I did. When I was um, when I was a teenager, I was fascinated with some of the younger children in our, in our family—not my immediate family, but my my broader family—and uh, I've always been fascinated with uh, the growing minds of children and how they develop. And uh, to me, you know, there's a, a famous book called *The Magic Years*. Mm-hmm. And to me, the magic years continue from birth through young adulthood. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so it, it's the child's development in mind that so uh, captivated me. I don't know that I had formulated, oh, I'm going to become a pediatrician. But uh, when I decided to go to medical school, it was clear that I would be working with children and families and uh, 
There was there was no doubt about that when I applied to medical school. Yeah, and, you know. And, oh, and sorry, I, go ahead. And I and I and I'm equally interested in the medical aspects. You know, the the medical problems. So. I do keep my hand in taking care of sick kids as well for that reason. I'm a hospitalist at both uh, uh, NYU Langone and uh, and Bellevue about three months of the year. Not this year because I'm traveling too much, but uh-huh. I'll go back to it when this year's over. So are you, as the president of the AAP, do you basically serve a year and then somebody else serves? or? Yeah, well, it's a little more complicated. You actually serve for three years. Okay. You are president-elect, president, and immediate past president. And all three years are pretty busy. Oh, I mean, last I year I was uh, traveling a lot, too, and involved in many things. But the middle year, the president year, is, you know, that's the big one as far as being very, very, very involved. Yeah, yeah. I'm so, I feel like I want to go down, like, four different tracks here. <laughs> but I really, I kind of want to get back to... Um, like what got you into this a little bit? Because I'm thinking of my own education, which I was a my undergrad was in child development. But it's funny when I, what I now have a 16 year old, and we have a lot of friends whose kids are like, "What am I going to do with my life? Like, I'm going to go to college. What am I going to go for?" And it's been making me think of. I actually applied to my alma mater, the University of Connecticut, as a pre business major, and then as soon as I got there, I said, "Oh no, no, this isn't for me." So I enrolled in the school of photography, like in the art school. And after two semesters of that, I thought, "This is not where I want to." This is not, I don't resonate with the people, I think, in the, in the school. It just wasn't for me. And at the same time, uh, during my freshman year, I, I got to start working at the, uh, the Yukon Child Labs, which are like, that's, that's the, the kindergarten, the preschool, the, you know, the, the kind of yes. places where teachers learn how to be teachers and, um, and speech therapists will come and, and uh, stuff like that. And I, I just loved the whole idea of, of, like I was, fa- you were saying, you know, you were fascinated kind of with like their, what's going on in their minds. And that's exactly how I felt was like, why do they do what they do? And, <laughs> you know, it just brought me into that. And I, um, you'd mentioned earlier about working with like language delays and stuff like that. I like la- when I was working on my graduate work, which was uh, to become a teacher, an early childhood teacher, I loved, I, I ended up kind of minoring in language acquisition and, um, and so these early years where kids are learning language, um, I mean, that's such a fascinating time of life for so many other reasons. But do you, do you have a special favorite kind of among like the developmental uh, aspects of early childhood? Or? Well, I, I, the, the major focus, I mean, my, clinically, I see kids at all ages. In fact, I'm going to see a young man today who's a teenager who has uh, uh, some autistic kind of symptoms mm-hmm. and problems. But uh, my, my uh, area of great focus is uh, the, the early years. Yeah. Uh, because that's where I think from the point of view of what we can do as a society, that's where we have to focus. Because if you don't focus there, it's, it's not that it's too late, but it's close to too late to start later. Yeah, exactly. And, it's... Uh, you know, I always say that at... Um, in the first couple of years of life, there are 700 new synapses every second. Now, a synapse is a connection in your brain between two brain cells. Mm-hmm. There are 700 new synapses happening each second in a young child's brain. Oh, my gosh. Think about, and by the way, that's probably an underestimate. Uh, there are higher estimates than that, but I'm embarrassed to even use the higher estimates. 
700 per second sounds, you know, impressive enough. <laughs> it sure does. But, but what that means is really the, the brain triples in size in the first two years and actually doesn't get that much bigger after that. So there's this is such a, an, a time of huge um, brain development for a child. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that it's such a critical period and some of it is silent to the outside, but it's happening nevertheless. And, um, and so it, it, from my point of view, in thinking about what we as a society, as a country, as a city, as an organization have to do, we have to focus first on, on early childhood because of, of what's going on in the child's brain. Oh, I'm so glad to hear you say that. I mean, the, the whole focus of this podcast, the whole focus of my life's work, really, I mean, aside from the, the, the raising of my own children, which I mean, they were early childhood aged at one point as well. It has been on it, the importance of that, that those early, early years. And um, I think I, what I worry about is that it can create and I felt this for, as my as a as a parent myself, it can create this tremendous sense of pressure in young in early in parents of young children. Do you find that? And if so, what what can we do about that? Just the worries yeah. and the pressure, you know? Well, I think um, it's okay. You know, I'll give you a couple different answers if I can do that. <laughs> Certainly, please. Because, I, you know, m- my experience is that parents are not worried enough about it. So yeah. uh, uh, so my first answer is, okay, good, good thing to worry about. If you're going to worry about something about your kid, worry about it. But I think more importantly, my, my real answer would be, it should be fun for the parents. Yes. Uh, so what you what parents need to do is to get the support they need to know what they need to know, and then you know just do it and have fun doing it. If you're having fun doing it, you're doing the right thing. Yeah. Gosh, that's so good to hear. Because, um, uh, you know, if you're not having fun, then there's something wrong. You need to get some help to figure out how to have fun. And it's making me think of, um, I don't know if you've heard about this, there's a second grade teacher last week in Texas who sent home a letter with her students for the families and the letter said, I am not instituting a formal homework curriculum this year. Instead of doing homework, what I want, you know, what I'm asking you to focus on with your kids is eating dinner together as a family, playing together, getting, making sure that they get to bed early and basically enjoying this time. And she, she's saying these are the things that indicate success like these are the things that will make your child successful not so much homework but just when i read that i thought that's the right idea it's about it's about enjoying your time together right yeah and And i you know so uh, i'll tell you an interesting uh story about my own family so my youngest child is now 36 so Mm -hmm. this is uh but when he was young um i i sort of grew up as he entered school i would say i sort of was thinking oh homework is very important I'm really, uh, you know, I'll, we'll, we'll work with him if he needs it, but, you know, this is an important thing for him to do every night. And then when he started getting homework that was mostly busy work. Yes. Uh, which a lot of homework, especially in the early years. In the, in the later years, it's quite different. You're, you're reading uh, a lot of texts, you're writing essays, you're doing things that you actually need to learn how to do. But yeah. in the early years, it's often busy work. Yeah. And I used to, I learned to hate his homework. <laughs> so even though I started out being so pro-homework, I totally turned around. So uh, I, you know, tell that teacher or I would tell that teacher, right on, you know, have them do fun things, have them read, 
Yes. That they want to read. Have them, you know, talk and yeah. explore the world. That would be much more important than than some worksheets. Yeah, yeah. And it's uh, I, so. If he did, you say he was thirty six. Your youngest He's now thirty six. So yeah. that does that mean that where in the continuum of uh, I'm just trying to place this for like like was it a time in our society where it was like every, the focus was totally on do as much homework as you can as young as you can and or was no, it more I, of a kind of relaxed. Uh, I guess it was neither. He got homework. It wasn't overwhelming homework. He, you know, we grew up, he grew up in a, a pretty uh, competitive school system, mm-hmm. uh, not a private school, but a competitive school system. Mm-hmm. And, but um, it wasn't that there was an overwhelming amount of it. It was just that I just looked at that homework and I said, you know, he's really not learning anything from doing this homework. Yeah, exactly. It's just, it's busy work. It's repetitive. It's, uh, it's often know. like checking that they actually learned what they should know and he already knew it. So. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I love the idea too, that, you know, homework is acceptable and probably good for, for older students, right? It's, it's something that if you're going to, if you're going to self-reflect, if you're going to try and take your your own ideas and put them down on paper. If you're going to extrapolate from what you're reading, you, th- those are things that take time. They're not done in a 45 minute, you know, class yeah, during so, the day. So I think, yeah, I think the more, uh, yeah, I, you know, certainly in high school, the the homework that you should be getting in high school should not be busy work, should be really important things that make you think and to learn how to learn how to think and then learn how to put your thoughts down in writing. Yes. Or yeah. or for discussion. That's that's really the work of high school. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm remembering when I was a third grader uh, up here in Massachusetts, I got homework for the I went home with homework for the first time and I was thrilled because I felt like oh, I'm finally like old enough and mature enough to to be given homework and I and the experience with my son with my older we actually ended up homeschooling and I mean, I can't blame homework for the whole thing, but um, we found that homeschooling is a much, it allows them to pursue their own interests and really have, a, it, it got a lot more fun, I'll tell you that, when, when we started homeschooling, um, just because we were able to kind of help them with their own interests and foster their curiosity and be out in the world with them. And it was much more on kind of along their uh, agenda, especially when they were really young. But his experience, I mean, he started getting homework in kindergarten. And it was, as you say, it was busy work. It was not something that would further your thinking or, or right. whatever, and uh, or ex- help you explore the world as a five-year-old. So um, I, I I feel like a lot of uh, the, the questions I want to ask you kind of have to do with like differences between the kids, kids and their experiences now and kids and their experiences, you know, kind of earlier in, in like in past generations. And I'm wondering if those experiences change because of the almighty screen, you know, we're all so focused on our screens nowadays is, do you see that in, in, um, your practice? Well, I do think that, um, kids are now, um, beyond their, 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 their computer, they now have smartphones and they're and that's good and bad mm-hmm. you know it's good in that there's opportunity to actually explore the world and find out about things and i also think that social communication is good for kids oh absolutely but it's bad in that um it may prevent them from actually having face-to-face social uh, interactions yeah and um uh and and reading yep uh, which I think is really important. You know, my favorite 
year in my schooling, just getting back to the to the uh, uh, distant past. Uh, <laughs> Not so very distant. I know, was uh, in my fourth grade. My fourth grade teacher had a library in the classroom. Wow. And everyone was supposed to take a book out and read it or, you know, keep it for two nights and read it. And I think I learned more that year just by doing that. Than, and I also learned to love reading. So yeah. um, it, and it was an amazing year, and, you know, uh, that very much because we didn't have homework. We had, we had to go read. And then the next day you would talk about the book you read. Wow. And so, uh, so I, think, uh, I think the bad thing about smartphones and iPads and et cetera is that um, – it does take time away from reading. And I think um, for young kids, I think uh, especially it takes time away from the parent talking to the kid and reading to the kid. Because the parent yeah. is using their phone. Well, both ways. The parent may be using their own phone. I see this in the streets all the time. Mm-hmm. Mother's sitting with her little kid, but she's looking at her phone. Mm-hmm. Or he, I don't mean to blame No, mothers. exactly. It's dads too, or older yeah. brothers or something. But on the other hand, as the kid gets older and gets their own little iPad, the kid is just sitting there playing games on the iPad, which are not very educational and not having conversations with their parents yeah. and not lo- looking around the world around them and learning from them. So I do think that that the substitution of too much time uh, on iPhones and iPads and smart, I should say smartphones and and um, and um, um, tablets um it's the substitution part that's bad you know if, yeah. if it's substituting for interacting with other kids or with adults yeah if it's substituting for reading real books and if it's substituting for you know exploring the world around you uh then then it is bad especially for young children oh i so agree and only learn Really, they only learn from their you know, direct experiencing the world or direct interactions with other people. And so that's how they learn. Yeah. Uh, therefore, it's okay for them to do it a little, and there may be some good things that you could do on, on a tablet or, or a smartphone. But if it's, you're spending a lot of time on it as a young child, that means you're not spending your time in direct interaction with people and the world. Yeah. And I, I mean, we notice this in our own home. I've noticed both from the side of my 16 year old just got a phone and he'll pull it out of the dinner table or something. And we're teaching him, you know what, that's not cool. Like it, just yeah. because we're in a restaurant and no one is saying anything at the table that's relevant to you, that doesn't mean you get to pull out your phone and, and sort of tune out. That's not how the world works. But then it also, I've noticed, um, I mean, smartphones for us in our home are a relatively new thing. I mean, we've, there's always, always been screens and that sort of thing, but, um, I've noticed that, especially with my younger child, um, I, I don't know why he happens to catch me, where I'll be doing something on my phone and he'll come up with a question and I have to say to myself and him, I'm sorry, I'm going to set this aside. You are more important than my phone. And I think that's a shift that that it's hard to make. I mean, you just want to finish what you're doing on your phone. <laughs> you know what I mean? But but at the same time, it's so, so important. Yeah, Um yeah, so I think it, I think it goes both ways. I do see a lot of parents sort of totally immersed in their smartphone, mm-hmm. and not I shouldn't say not paying attention to their kids, but not really interacting with their kids. Yeah, it's you know they're safe, they're right next to you, it's fine, they're eating whatever, but 
but but it's so and I've experienced that myself. It's so easy to to tune them out, and it's so problematic. So that so parents need to uh, focus on not doing that. Yeah. Or figuring out how not to do that. You can figure out how not to do that. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. I this brings up for me a little bit of why I when I ever first sort of learned about you and um, you like as a spokesperson for the American Academy of Pediatrics talking yeah. about toxic stress and stuff like that um, was in a Globe Boston Globe magazine article, not magazine Boston Globe article, and um, by Karen Weintraub was the was the author's name, and it was about how we are seeing these levels of toxic stress, what's called toxic stress, really damaging stress in younger and younger kids. And I don't know, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to branch away from that article for a second because it, what it made me immediately think of was how because of screens, children, little children have the opportunity now to see a lot more like violence and stuff. You go, we walk into a Dunkin' Donuts or your doctor's office or a hospital or something like that and, and there's news on and the news is not good news. <laughs> Yeah. Do, do you know, like, is it, have you, is that a factor? Well, do you it, think? It, in- that is, that is a concern for, uh, for the American Academy of Pediatrics, for pediatricians, for families. Yeah. Um, uh, we just have a new policy called virtual violence. Uh-huh. You can look up and read. But I will, I will link to it. That's, that's what it basically says, which is there's a lot of virtual violence. Now, stuff you see on TV is not necessarily virtual, but it's virtual in some ways in that, the kid isn't directly experiencing it. He's experiencing it secondhand through a screen. Yeah. Um, and um, so, um, and it's been shown that that has a negative impact on child's behavior, um, especially uh, making them more likely to be distractible or aggressive. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think when we talk about toxic stress, we're talking, we're not talking about that. Okay. We're talking about the direct experience the child has in having a safe, nurturing environment, predictable environment. Okay. Safe, nurturing, predictable environment. Yeah. So what does that mean? It means that if kids, especially for the first couple of years of life, need to know that when they cry, somebody responds. Yeah. And they need, when they're hungry, somebody has food. When they want their parents' attention or somebody's attention, they can get it. Um, and that th- there are routines during the day. You know, one of the things I, uh, parents of young children learn very quickly is how important routines are for young kids. Oh, yeah. You know, they need to know that this is what's going to be the routine. They need that. That makes them feel secure. And within those routines, they can really thrive and explore. Yeah. And so, so when kids don't have a safe environment, when kids don't have parents for whatever reason that can't respond to them or feed them or are too stressed out by a thousand other things going on in the family's life, mm-hmm. then that becomes a chronic stress. And so when we talk about toxic stress, we're talking about chronic stress. Um, that so chronic are, meaning sort of continual, right? Sorry to interrupt, but... Yeah, continual and also over time and not just continual like minute to minute but day to day yeah week to week. yeah so what that means is that the child's uh, that learns learns or their brain learns really that they can't depend upon adults they can't depend upon being able to get food when they're hungry they yeah. can't depend upon any routines and that that sets their brain in a very different place than it should be 
as it's developing, as I said, as these 700 synapses per second are happening, happening, what that does is it changes the way the brain develops so that it's always on edge. It's always expecting something bad to happen. It's always not able to sort of concentrate on, you know, the things that kids need to concentrate on, playing and learning and uh, and talking and, you know, all of those things get get um, disturbed by this chronic stress. And actually, we know that it actually changes to some degree, not completely, but to some degree, it changes this, the way this, the structure of the brain is as yeah. the child grows. And it's so making it me... lasting effects. Oh, okay. Um, and it's making me think of uh, just a couple of different things. I feel like my synapses are firing a lot here. Um a lot of times as a as a teacher, I really as a teacher uh, of young children, I, I spent my uh, post master's degree time as a teacher in a public preschool program, which was, you know, we worked to get ourselves um, accredited through the National Association for the Education of Young Children and yeah. um, love that organization and loved developmental developmentally appropriate practice, the book by Sue Bradekamp, which is about like what children really need. And I've been reading a book called Grit recently. And grit, having grit is this idea that you will follow through with your passions, that you that you will not give up in something that you really, really want. And I know it's it's a bit of a departure, but uh, the author of that book, whose name is Angela Duckworth, she talks about um, how to instill grit in your children. But the, before that, they get into um, what kind of a parent is a parent who could instill grit, which is obviously that's what we want. The case for this book is we want grit for our children. And um, she talks about uh, wise parenting, which is a combination of uh, respecting your child, being warm with your child, you know, caring about what your children think about the world and want and need and respect respecting them but also she brings in this idea of kids need um they need you to hold them to some kind of expectations like they need structure in their lives as we've been talking about and and um i think i don't know if you find this what i really want to ask is uh, because you see so many children and families in my world i kind of feel like as a suburban parent or, you know, person in a community, that there's a lot of attention to respecting your child and being kind and warm with your child. But there's not so much on the structure of your child's days. People, parents seem to me to be trending towards permissive. And if they do that, they're not giving their children these boundaries that they need, right? They're, they're, they're sort of saying, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that this is, this is a gross well, a gross overstim- oversimplification of parenting. Okay, I know, <laughs> I know. <laughs> there are probably four four main types of parenting. Mm-hmm. Um, something called authoritarian, which means you're the boss and you tell the kid what to do. Yeah, you must listen um, to my orders, right? Yes. Uh, there's a permissive, which is sort of, you know, whatever the kid wants to do, that's fine. Yeah. I mean, that's a, uh, these are oversimplifications. And then um, uh, maybe the worst kind of parenting is uh, dissociative. In other words, the parent is really just not involved with the kid. Yeah, neglect. Could you say neglectful, maybe? It would be neglectful, but it, uh, uh, I would just say just not involved or, the, or, the, or inconsistently involved. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and then the, the best kind of parenting, which we know is the best, is something called authoritative, yes. not authoritarian, which means... 
um, exactly what you describe, which is that you respect your child, you want to know where your child is and wants to do, but there are also rules and expectations, and you know a lot, and uh, you're here to guide them uh, while allowing them to um, to explore the world in the way that they want to. Mm-hmm. And so, so indeed, that's the kind of parenting we encourage the most, authoritative, yeah. Parents not permissive, um, but also not authoritarian, which means giving the kid orders and yeah, yeah, and allowing the child any independent choice as they get older. I, you know, I, I'm I'm practicing. I'm watching. I have two granddaughters. Yeah, congratulations. One is, one is 11 years old. My daughter's daughter, mm-hmm. and uh, my son. I just spent the weekend with her, and my son's. A daughter is 18 months now, 19 months old. Oh, adorable. <laughs> I've, so I've been, you know, each time you have a new grandchild or a child, you just kind of relive early childhood. Yeah. Also, I relive parenting. Yeah. And so I've been watching now my, my daughter-in-law and son with my 18, 19-month-old granddaughter. And, um, uh, and they are very, very... Um, they're they're actually very good at trying to go where she wants to be. Yeah. Nevertheless, having structure and having, I wouldn't say rules about, you know, what we're doing now and what, you know, how do you you treat a book and how do you treat people. And and yet giving her a lot of leeway in what she eats, what she does. Yeah. uh, Etc. So um, I've been sort of reliving that authoritative style recently and sort of watching it up close. Um, yeah, I love that. Life. Yeah, and it's the idea of, I mean, I think you can look at it as follow through too, right? Like if she destroys a book and they do nothing about it, and the next time she destroys a book, they're like, hey, you know, stop that or whatever. Like you, you want to try and have consistent... Uh, you know, consistent. Yeah. So I think consistency, you said the exact right word. When I watch parents who are doing well with their kid, they are consistent, meaning every time a young, all young children will throw books on the floor, which is okay, or mm-hmm. chew them or, you know, hurt them in some ways. But at some point, as the child is getting older, you need to start to say, you know, this is how we treat a book. Yeah. And, but you need to do that every time they're holding a book, not just <laughs> every now and then. Yeah, that's because the tricky that's part, isn't it? So that consistency. And what happens is, if you're consistent, then those problems go away pretty quickly. Yes, yeah, because, and I always look at this as, um, it's your child has almost walls within their mind, like imaginary walls. And if you, it's up to us to keep those walls consistent. If we, if we let them run down the hall once and then really come down on them hard the next time you, we've just moved their walls. They don't know what's, what's, what's okay and what's not. And I think not that that will cause toxic stress, but that definitely causes confusion. And I think over time that kind of, I mean, that's a, that's not authoritarian. Uh, sorry, that's not authoritative. It's not wise parenting. And it's, it's what you can end up. Is that how like one way that you could create some kind of stress in your child if it's not even if it's not toxic? I think that's different than toxic stress, but it does create um, 
uh, behavior problems that, you know, you are creating as a parent. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so I think that's what you're describing very accurately, which is if you're, uh, in- inconsistently inconsistent. Yes. <laughs> that the child never learns, oh, this rule actually works. Yeah. If I do this, I get rewarded. If I don't do this, um, you know, mommy is not pleased with me. Yeah, yeah. But uh, if if one time you seem it's fine to do this, and the next time you say you suddenly are rigid oh, about, about it, it's yeah. like can't get. They don't know what the rule is. They yeah. don't know how to how to try to figure out their behavior. Yeah, we've moved their walls on them. We can't do yeah. that. So, yeah. so um, just getting back to toxic stress, I have um, I have some questions from listeners. And um, the first one, they're not all related to toxic stress. In fact, there's only one that really is. Um, And her question is from listener Michelle. And her question is, what, if anything, can be done to counteract the effects of those negative childhood experiences? Well, if you're talking as a parent, it's mostly what's going on in the home and the family. So uh, it's easy to counteract that if if you're not totally stressed out yourself. So what I would say to parents is, so tell me about your stress, because mm-hmm. toxic stress in children is almost exclusively happening in families where the parents are totally stressed out themselves. And by stressed out, you mean things like there's not enough food to put on the table. There's it's there's violence in their food. everyday lives. There's violence. They're, they may become homeless tomorrow. Oh, they, wow. um, they don't have enough support for their own emotional needs. Yeah. Yeah. So counteracting the toxic stress means counteracting these negative. Right. Figuring out is how do you get help with the stresses in your personal life so that you can do what really, you know, my experience is almost all parents want to do the right thing. Oh, of course. Uh, I mean, there are a few parents who don't, but mostly, mostly even very stressed out parents really want to do it, but they just don't have the bandwidth. Yeah. Because they're focusing on so many other issues, which could be marital discord, uh, lack of money, insecure housing, insecure job opportunities, having to work two jobs and worrying about what's going on with your kid and having to figure out how you get people to watch your kid and, you know, et cetera. So I think that's the context in which it would be good for parents to say, okay, how do I... um, how do I create this safe, um, d- you know, dependable environment that my kid knows, even if I'm not here, uh, that things are going to be okay, that they can get food, that somebody will be there to take care of their needs. Mm-hmm. That that's how you can counteract toxic stress. And if and you know, so mostly toxic stress is toxic stress is something that parents don't sit there and say, how do I counteract this? They are most mostly there because they're so stressed out themselves they can't focus on creating a safe secure dependable environment yeah what do you see in young children who have this toxic stress like what what uh, kind of behaviors well, do they have so first of all most of what we see is you know on the average so mm-hmm. on one hand there are kids who are amazingly resilient mm-hmm. for whatever reasons uh, we don't know enough about that really but in, in spite of living in a somewhat chaotic environment, they're fine. Yep. They, they somehow figure it out and fine. At the other extreme, there are kids who are very fragile. That mm-hmm. even uh, just not the best environment may throw them off. And then most kids are sort of in between 
they're fine if they have a, um, a good environment, but if they're constantly in a situation where things are chaotic or people are not co uh, consistently meeting their needs, they get stressed out. And so what, what happens to those kids is a couple of things. First of all, they have behavior problems. They end up being more uh, uh, unable to concentrate on things, unable to learn in school, mm -hmm. uh, un un unable to you know, appropriately socially interact with other kids. And so that impacts their social emotional development is impacted. And we now know that probably the your kid's social emotional development, meaning their ability to focus on things, their ability to uh, have what we call executive functionings, meaning control their behaviors, mm -hmm. um, that those things uh, not be aggressive, you know, socially interact in an appropriate way, that those things are probably more predictive of school readiness and being successful in school than anything else. So what we see with kids who are experiencing toxic stress is they, they don't have those well-developed executive functions, mm -hmm. and uh, they therefore act out or don't pay attention or can't sit still and don't, don't interact with either adults or kids in a way which allows them to get the most out of those interactions, and therefore they end up having real problems. Yeah. Uh, yeah. At the extreme, I, I, I used to call, um, so I used to refer to something as a nursery school dropout, but <laughs> you know, they behave so badly in nursery school that they uh, teachers don't want them in the class. Yeah, yeah. Now, that's a problem for a lot of poor kids. We now know that there are, there are, there are too many kids being suspended from nursery school. Yeah, yeah. So what teachers need to do is get those kids the services to help change that behavior. Yeah, because uh, and if you not, think, not try to kick them out of the school. Yeah, and if you if you think about it, like I I spent uh, the time that I was mentioning before in in the preschool program, I was the head teacher of uh, the typical children in a classroom with an equal amount of special needs children, and a lot of a lot of those needs had to do with things like language delays. Um, there was a lot of poverty among the children who were in the special needs you know, who were categorized as special needs. And what we found, because we did not suspend, I mean, we really tried to work with with just the, with the children and also with the families. Um, and what we found was that they needed to come to school for, for the modeling, for the warmth, for the the Absolutely. kind of, you know, things that, that, that will really help. I mean, then this is long before anybody had ever heard of toxic stress, you know, but uh, it does make me think that those, even if you don't know what it's called, you can still help, right? Absolutely. I think those kids need a, uh, a school environment that's structured, nurturing, accepting more than any, well, all kids need it, I yeah, yeah. Any, but certainly, especially those kids need it. They don't need to be kicked out of school because they're misbehaving. <laughs> it's, it serves the opposite purpose. Right. In fact, that's where they can learn to behave. Yeah. And yeah. also learn, learn to learn, really, actually. Yeah. I mean, yeah. the same kids who have toxic stress and therefore have this problem with executive functions and functioning and, and controlling their behaviors and paying attention, those same kids are likely not to have had a lot of language input yeah. and therefore have delayed language or lower language. It doesn't have to be delayed. It's just lower language. Yeah. And, and, and lower just experience in life that, you know, that 
kids who are being nurtured have so many experiences that just enrich what their understanding of the world is. Yeah. Yeah. And that it's so necessary for them to, to get those, <laughs> get those positive experiences. Of how, um, especially poor kids living in inner cities, how uh, constricted their experiences is. I always tell the story when I was a medical student, I volunteered on the child psych ward here in, uh, at Bellevue because mm-hmm. I was a medical student here. And uh, I spent a lot of time. I got to know a lot of the kids there. Um, and uh, one of the things in those days that we did was that when the kids went to some longer placement somewhere, I would I would just take them. Now, that would never be allowed today mm-hmm. that some student would go off with a kid. They would never allow that. In those yeah. days, they did. So I got to go to a lot of places where a number of the kids on the psych ward went. And there was one little kid, Eugenio, who was just the most adorable kid in the world. And um, he was being placed in a residential center. He didn't have any real severe, significant psychological problems. He mm-hmm. was just neglected. He needed a place to live. and a, pl- a nice place to live. And I, I took him up. Um, by train and then by ca- by taxi to uh, Hastings on the Hudson. Now, if you live in New York, you understand that Hastings on the Hudson is way up above the Hudson. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, this residence was in some big old mansion that was now converted into a residential center for kids who needed a place to live. And as I was getting out of the car and paying the taxi driver, in those days I couldn't use my credit card, uh, I had to pay cash, and I, I noticed when I finished that he was just staring, staring at the scene, which is this gorgeous scene of the Hudson River. With there was a little sailboat on it that was so far away you could hardly see it move, mm-hmm. and the beautiful greenery and the Palisades across. And he was just looking at it. And he turned to me and he said, "That's a picture, isn't it?" Oh wow! And you know he knew it wasn't a picture really, but he couldn't imagine that something that beautiful would actually be real. Wow. So, you know what, you know, think about what that says about his experience, that he couldn't even imagine yeah. that, that existed, that it had to be just a picture. Yeah, yeah, that, nothing like that could really he, exist. He sort of knew it wasn't a picture. He was, not, he was a very smart kid. And, and I said, no, that's really where you're going to be living. And, you know, we broke out in this big smile and... Oh. Uh, so, you know, think about what his life was like before then. Yeah, yeah. That that I feel like that offers hope too. You know. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. All right. So we have um, our time is getting short. I I hate this. <laughs> I love. I mean, I love talking um, to you and and you know to everybody that I get to have conversations with. But it seems like this hour goes so darn quickly. So mm-hmm. um, I want to ask just a couple questions from sure. from listeners, and then I have one last question for you, which hopefully we'll okay. have time for. Um, listener Sabrina asks, and they're 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 totally not to do with. Uh, with toxic stress at all. Um, She asks, how do children's palates develop and is there a range of development? For example, do most kids not like broccoli or other veggies because their palate just hasn't developed yet? Do some kids have more sensitivities to sight and smell and taste of foods? And and I think that's her question is like, what's a parent to do kind of, you know? Yeah, sure. So number so I'm going to give you the short and then I'll I'll expound on it a little more. The answer is it all has to do with the parent, not the kid. Oh, so, okay. Interesting. All little kids, um, often the first time they taste a new food, 
don't like it or don't seem to want it. Mm-hmm. You know, they'll reject it. But if you keep on offering it to them and, you know, uh, not forcing them, but offering it to them, they will eventually get to like various foods. Uh, and there's nothing specifically about any taste that kids don't like. Okay, cool. It's just... We give it to them once and then we say, oh, they hate Brussels sprouts because I gave them a Brussels sprout and they didn't want it. Fine, go back the next time. Uh, and also, the food should taste good to you as a parent. Mm-hmm. You're giving some... Um, I, that's why I recommend to parents to prepare their own baby foods and not to buy jarred baby foods. Yes. Other than the, the fruits, uh, jarred baby foods don't taste very good. And so I don't blame kids for not liking, you know, pureed green beans in a jar. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a jar. It's, you know, it, they, they look like jars, but they're really cans. Yes. So canned foods just don't taste very good. Uh, and so, uh, it, so just as an aside, my daughter-in-law is a vegetarian. Mm-hmm. And so my grand, my 18-month or 19-month-old granddaughter is growing up primarily as a vegetarian. Uh, and so, you know, she eats broccoli. She loves broccoli. Now, mm-hmm. why does she love broccoli? Because she's been offered it. It's It's been made fresh. And she well, maybe the first time she didn't like it, but then the second time she liked it. And, and now she looks forward to, you know, cauliflower, broccoli, uh, green beans, and all sorts of vegetables because... She's seen it a lot, and she's learned to like it because she, it's been offered to her, and not forced. And I think the other aspect is not to be forced. Not forced. No pressure, right? Because when there's pressure, that's then that that becomes like, oh, I I don't want to eat this. Yeah. Now it's a control thing. It's not so much about the food as like you're making me eat this. No. Yeah. And also, <laughs> then it becomes a battle. And once. Yeah. I always say to parents, you cannot win a battle about food with your child. Yep. That's yeah. so true. So you don't want to get into a battle. There's yeah. nothing, no reason to ever get The other thing that kids do is they get into one food for a week and then suddenly they don't like, they want something else. Yeah. So it's very normal for kids to want the same thing every night for a week and then they're off and they want something else. Yeah. Yeah. And that's okay. There's good science that shows that left to their own devices, children will pick a balanced diet. Oh, that's wonderful. I love that thought. <laughs> Left to their own devices, children will pick a balanced diet. Yeah. Listeners, remember that. <laughs> Hang yeah. on to that. And then uh, the other question I have is um, from listener Adele. And she's actually a friend of mine, too. And we've my son has just come out, uh, finished up with a bout of Lyme disease. We caught it early enough, you know, hopefully that that things will be okay with him. But he was on antibiotics. He was allergic to one kind of antibiotics. And, and for my friend Adele, it brought up this idea of antibiotic resistance. And actually, I mean, um, because she knew that I was going to be speaking to, to you about young children, um, how many children... She was taught, we were talking about how many young children get ear infections, and it seems like sometimes pediatricians are really quick to put a kid onto antibiotics and sometimes not. And she's wondering, what are your opinions, your like personal opinions about antibiotic use, and then what's the official recommendation of the American Academy of Pediatrics on this topic? Yes, yeah, so the, the American Academy of Pediatrics has several policies on this, uh, of a clinical practice guideline about how to treat it, and basically... If the child is not, number one, if the child is not a little baby, mm-hmm. the child is not running high fevers or sick, yeah. we recommend judicious waiting, meaning give the kid a couple of days to see if they get better with some Tylenol. Um, something for pain and, relief. or Something for pain relief. 
and uh, that you know a lot of kids will get better on their own. And then in a day or two, if they're not better or they're getting worse, then you would use antibiotics. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is different if the kid is running 104 fever. Oh, absolutely. You know, and, yeah. Or maybe a, a young infant. But generally speaking, um, we recommend uh, judicious waiting before starting antibiotics routinely. Yeah, wonderful. And that will... If I look in a kid's ear, it looks like it's about to perforate. You know, it's very angry looking. I might say, okay, this is the kid I'd better start with. Yeah, yeah. Those kids are likely to have fever, likely to have a lot of pain. They sort of go together. Mm -hmm. That's very different than the kid who has a little redness in his ear and has had a cold and, you know, um, and so... I, the, 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 the rule now is not to just rush and start antibiotics. Oh, wonderful. And that will, of course, help with this idea of antibiotics resistance, right? It'll... Yes, although most antibiotic resistance, yes. I mean, yes. So that's, I'm giving a firm yes. Yep. But the but is most antibiotic resistance has not to do with kids getting antibiotics. It has to do with, number one, adults getting a lot of antibiotics, mm-hmm. especially in hospitals. Uh, and also... Animals getting a lot of antibiotics to get bigger. That's right. That's right. So the, the big, my, you know, if we, if we want to stop antibiotic resistance, we need to stop giving a- antibiotics in huge amounts to farm animals. Like that get, will be used for food. I'm sorry to interrupt, but that's what you mean, right? Like, yeah, I mean, we we give uh, right now. Agribusiness gives a lot of antibiotics because those animals will get bigger and fatter. Mm-hmm. Not that they're sick. Yeah. We actually have a new policy in the academy that came out that says antibiotics in farm animals should only be used when they're sick, not to make them bigger and fatter. Mm-hmm. A lot of the resistance we're seeing has to do with the huge amount of antibiotics that are being given to farm animals. Mm-hmm. Not to- mm-hmm. Well, thank you very much for answering questions. And and I have one last question um, for you, and it is this. There's a lot of clutter out there in the world of parenting, lots of competing messages, fear, crazy busyness in every parent's everyday life. And I'm wondering if a parent could do just one thing each and every day, make a habit of just one thing as they're raising their young children, could you you recommend that one thing? Yes. Well... I know, it's a tough one. It's <laughs> yeah, not just one thing, but I would say talk to them and read to them. Talk to them and read to them. All right, wonderful. And, and actually, if I was going to recommend one thing, mm-hmm. I'd have to say love them. Oh, yes, of course. I like, isn't that because funny? I mean, you sort of... Start, it all starts with love. You know, it's funny. We have a program here where we are helping parents, poor parents, um, you know, be better parents with their kids, learn how to talk to them and read to them and play with them and things that they may want to do but may not know how to do as mm-hmm. well as they like. But when you look at the change in their behavior, and I watch how those parents change, what really is going on is that they're just loving their kids in a different way. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Start by having fun and loving your kid, and everything else will probably follow from there. But talking about things and yeah. expanding their language and responding to their what they're asking you or talking to you about as well as reading them children's books. Those are the most important things. Oh, I love that. So we have three things, and and we'll leave it there for today. Love them, talk to them, and read with them. And that is our show for today. Dr. Bernard, listen to me, Dr. Bernard Dreyer, thank you so much for being my guest today. You shared so much inspiration and hope, and you truly are a voice of reason. Thank you so much for being here. 
That's great fun for to talk to you. Oh, and wonderful. To hear what the listeners are asking about, too. Yeah, so. yeah, I'm sure, yeah. Uh, listeners, you can get in touch with Dr. Dreyer by going to bpd numeral one at nyumc.org and I will have a link to that or at least identify it in in my uh, show notes because that's a that's a long one but you can get in touch with me by going to we turned out okay.com slash contact or you can find me on twitter at stone age techie or on instagram at we turned out okay and again just thank you so much for listening uh, please share the show if you think it'll benefit other parents just like you as you know we talk about this all the time social media is word of mouth and if you can post it into your favorite social media um it's going to, you know, more parents will get the benefit of, of hearing Dr. Dreyer. So, and finally, I just have a special thanks to our producer, the man who appreciates the work that the American Academy of Pediatrics does just as much as I do, the 19-time winner of the Husband of the Year Award, Benjamin Culp. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next time. for listening to We Turned Out Okay. I want to date to Australia. Find us on the web at weturnedoutok.com where you'll find show notes and more. What do you call cheese that's not yours? Nacho cheese. And remember, we only go around once. To be the best parents we can be, let's relax and enjoy the ride. I want to pee in the woods. Derp, 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 derp,